Hello, I'm Elizabeth, an obsessive backyard gardener who might be able to offer you a couple of tips. And I'm Keith, a landscape consultant, and I'm also passionate about gardening. The one thing we both have in common is muddy muddy boots. boots. Here we are for another of my favourite sessions. It is Q&A time. Today's topics include shade garden planting, chilli pests, autumn leaves, dahlia bulbs, greenhouses and a question about Keith's favourite, or not, Manchurian pear trees. <laughs> Listen up, as apart from picking up some valuable, valuable tips, you may be the winner of a fabulous prize from our friends at The Plant Runner. Let's go, Keith. Our first question is from Ali. I'm located on a farm in central west New South Wales and I'm wanting to create a large garden under some established gum trees. I'd love some plant suggestions, please. The area receives dappled light only and we only have occasional, occasional, I should say, water from a bore. Hi, Ali. Well, there's uh, nothing to say that you can't create a garden underneath those canopies of trees. So... What I'd be thinking about first is how you're going to lay it out. Um, and I always like to, to work on the basis of giving you information about the, the, the shorter plants, the medium plants, and then the taller plants. So for shady areas, plants to about a metre high, there is a range of acacias, and there's some called uh, acacia cognata, and they're dwarf forms. So there's one called mini cog to give you an idea. Um, there's also dwarf forms of banksias, um, and there's one called birthday candles, which is also a, a, a dwarf form. That's a wonderful one. And then there's hakias, and there's a hakia lorena, and it is called mini pinny. And Cute. of course, there are other varieties to one metre called philothica, myoparoides, and the subspecies of that is acuta. And then if we go to medium shrubs, so shrubs that are going to be between one and two metres tall, there's Coria bacchusiana, Coria borrelanii. Mm. Yeah, we can, <laughs> we can fix all these names up later. There's Westringia fruticosa and Westringia glabra. And then if we go into the larger shrubs, there's another Coria called Lorenziana, Hakia decurrens, Cansia ericoides, and then if you want to go into taller tree forms, there is Acacia cognata, which is the parent plant of, say, Acacia, the, the, the little dwarf one, which only gets to about a metre. Um, so Acacia cognata, beautiful, soft, weeping habit, lovely, dense leaves. And then another Acacia is Implexa, Acacia pravissima. And then, of course, there is um, a, a plant that looks a little bit like a conifer called Calitris, and the variety is Rhomboidei. Now, these, all these plants will tolerate dry shade once they have established themselves. So they're going to need water probably for the first year, and then they should be able to grow and look after themselves after that. The majority of those are... Natives. Natives. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And the reason for that is because gum trees. You're, you're, you've got gum trees, you, you don't want to have plants that are going to have um, a, rela- a, a, a bad relationship Negative. with gum yep. trees. Yeah, yep. okay. All right, now we have a question from Susie. Can you solve my red chilies problem? My green chilies are untouched, but every red one has a hole on one side near its top. 
I've tried soap spray, thinking it might be ants, but I'm getting nowhere. I'm in Queensland and would love any suggestions on how to stop it. Okay, well, chilies chilies are sweet to the taste when they're red. Um, and if we think about chilies, the hot of the chilies is not from the, the chilli itself. It is from the capsicum content that covers the seeds. So when, you, when you're actually doing some recipes with chilies, you'll often hear people say, use a bird's eye chilli, but r- remove the seeds. So you're getting rid of that intense heat. Mm. But um, look, it could be any number of pests that's causing it, but the, by the sounds of it, to me, little holes in the sides, is sort of leaning meat a little bit towards an earwig. Which that sort of you know, so they get in there and they they drill through the side of it and not have any problems because they're not getting into the actual capsicum part that that is really bad. Um, and we uh, we experienced this one year at the Melbourne International Flower and Gar- Garden Show where we had a whole range of chilies right at the very very back with the mild ones and right up the front with the incredibly hot ones. And every day that we arrived there in the morning, chilies were gone. And it was possums coming in and working their way down the chilies, and obviously getting hotter and hotter in the mouth. So that by the time they got to the most incredibly hot one, they were fine. They didn't. They didn't realise what they're eating. <laughs> so I, I would uh, I would have a look for earwig. So if you've got mats or pots or something else in that area, just have a little look to see if open them up and lift them up and just see if you've got earwigs in there. But it, one of the easiest ways to look after this sort of a problem is to spray on a weekly basis eco-neem. So if you do that on, on a regular basis, so spray the leaves, spray the chilies, um, this eco-neem becomes somewhat systemic, so it's absorbed by the leaves and by the plant itself, so that when any predators do come to try to eat those, it will kill them. And I think that's probably your best bet. The other, only other solution would be to perhaps... Put your chilies, if they're in pots, into a large saucer, lift the pot off the ground in that saucer and then fill that saucer with water so that you've, you've made this moat. Oh, good idea. So they can't swim, obviously. Um, and I'll just say about neem. Neem yes. is perfectly hu- perfectly fit for human consumption. It, it's one of the most revered plant in India where they use it from everything, from cleaning teeth to lying underneath to get, you know, well... It's just a brilliant stuff. Oh, fantastic. Okay, good luck with that, Susie. Now we have a lovely message and a question from Millie. Thank you for your wonderful podcast. I listen on my drive to work and just love it all. Isn't that nice to hear, Keith? We like that. Thank Thank you, you. Millie. She says, I'm a very lucky girl and, and am in the process of setting up a large greenhouse. I'm already growing a lot of vegetables in my patch, but I'm looking forward to an extended growing season inside the greenhouse as it's chilly here in the Macedon Ranges. I'm planning a combination of raised wicking beds, ah, there you go, wicking Mm. beds, and in-ground beds in the greenhouse with paths in between. As we are building in a paddock, what is the best way to ensure I don't get invasive grasses coming up through the beds and the paths? We don't want to have a concrete base as we want to benefit from the great soil down below and are very keen to keep everything as organic and kind to the earth and our pockets as possible. Your advice would be gratefully received. Okay. All right, my, my best suggestion for weed and grass suppression is to use weed matting. Now, shock horror. Don't all jump back and say, my God, what are you talking about? Weed matting? That's horrible, mucky stuff. Mm. Don't use weed matting. I'm suggesting you use a form of weed matting, which is called weed gunnel. 
and and this is not a not a a, a, a woven form. It is it's a it's a mono mono filament that, that actually creates this. So, weed gunnel is an an organic allowable input. So if you're an organic farmer, you can use weed gunnel. Um, and here I recommend you know that that you use it. To, to suppress all the weeds, to stop weeds coming up and stop weeds growing in through it. Now, weed gunnel will last for about seven years and then it breaks, it just breaks down and goes down into the soil, but it does not leave any toxic trace elements or heavy metals in the soil. This is where I think it's just absolutely brilliant. And it's available in lots of widths and lengths and it will be delivered directly to your door. If you contact www.facebook.com forward slash weed gunnel or G-U-N-N-E-L, weed gunnel or info at weed gunnel.com.au or easier, call Chris on 0417-749-099 and he will, you work out your widths, your lengths and all that and it'll be rolled up. And delivered it to your so front doorstep. So he'll cut it to shape. He'll, he he has a, a number of different widths okay, that's available, yeah, right. and then you buy it by the roll. Fantastic. Okay, that sounds great. Good luck, Millie, with that one. The next question is from Abby, who would like some advice on how best to protect and care for veggies like garlic and herbs and fruit and citrus trees from wet, windy, and frosty weather. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're talking about garlic. Just let's go for garlic and veggies. Um, most of those, uh, uh, garlic, for instance, comes from the Caucasus, that is uh, Afghanistan, all that area around there. So it's used to freezing temperatures. So the cold's not going to worry it so much. And then if you're growing things like broccolis and cabbages and collies, frost is not going to worry those too much either. But if you're worried about that at all, then I would suggest you use a horticultural fleece. Now, this is um, available in different gram size masses. Uh, so that's different thicknesses and so forth, from 17, 17 grams up to 50 grams. And it comes in rolls 5 metres to 100 metres in length and in widths from 1.6 metres to 3.2 metres. And it is literally just this, this soft fleecy A coat. coat that you put over anything that you're concerned about that, that might be affected by frost Fantastic. and it'll give it that protection. Wow. And it's also available from info at weedgunnel.com.au. So they have both these products. Um, and you can, you, know, you, can, you can use it year in, year out. You don't have to you know, buy enough and think, oh, I'm going to chuck that out next year. You roll it back up when the season comes warm, put it away and bring it out again next year. So it, it, it's also great. So once again, you could call Chris Minogue on 07-547-81993 and he'll post it out to your door. He sounds like now, he's in Queensland or something. He's in Queensland, yeah, but they, he posts that all over Australia. Okay. So, But if, if you're talking about citrus trees and, and you get a frost that comes down and it does burn those leaves and you've missed out putting this um, stuff over it, for the the main thing you don't do is cut off any of the burnt leaves on yeah. any of these plants because yes. you cut the burnt leaves off, you're exposing the other leaves the be- below it and you'll get the same effect happening. You prune off the, 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 the burnt leaves in spring once the new growth has started to form. That makes I hope that helps. Complete sense. Now, the lovely Marg has a question and the lovely Marg happens to be my mother-in-law. 
Uh, what is a creeper I can grow over a south-facing garden shed, Keith? Oh, hi, Mark. Um, look, you've got quite a, a number of options for a climber, and it'll all come down to whether you want an evergreen climber or you want a d- deciduous one. For an evergreen climber, I would suggest um, a, a climbing fig, so it, it is ficus stipulata, and the variety of that is either minima or pumilla, not the normal... You've got to get one of those two varieties because that has the, the small leaves. Another option would be going, going to star jasmine. Yes, of course. Which is a brilliant uh, form. Yes. Then, right. there's, then there's also um, a plant which is called a honeysuckle, which is lonicera. Um, and, and there's ericlimen is one of those forms. Or there's another um, climber that's an evergreen form, God forbid if he used it, and that's, of course, English ivy, which is hetera, hetera helix. God don't forbid, then don't use don't it. Don't use it. <laughs> <laughs> because it's going to what, ruin well, the it's, walls. It's, in, it's incredibly invasive, invasive and, it, and it, you can get really ratty you know, if you're not looking after it on a regular basis. But if you want to go for deciduous options... Then you've got the Boston ivy, uh, and that's, that is called Parthenocissus tricuspidata, or for a more flamboyant leaf display of that form, there is one called Parthenocissus quinquefolia. Mm. Um, then, of course, you've got clematis varieties in an array of colours, and they will, they will provide a beautiful show. You've got the climbing hydrangea, which is hydrangea oh, petiolaris, which would nice. be absolutely sensational. Yes. But it is deciduous. So you've got a, a choice yeah. to make whether you want evergreen, evergreen. or a nice show. With, yes. you know. Yep, yep. Okay, fantastic. Um, now we have Debbie. Debbie says, I was sucked into the Dahlia's podcast <laughs> last year and have been well rewarded. So thank you. I am now hooked on these beautiful flowers. But what do I do now? They've just about finished flowering, or probably will have by now, by the time this podcast mm. goes to air anyway. Uh, when do I cut them back? Do I dig them up? And if I do, how do I store them? What do I need to do with the soil before next planting? And is there something I can plant in between? Mm. Hi, Deb. If my memory serves me correct, I think you live at Mount Martha on the Mornings Peninsula. I think so. And the biggest problem with dahlias of course, is extreme cold. So that is freezing soils, and you're never going to have freezing soils down there close to the bay. A frost will blacken the leaves if you do get a frost, and a freezing soil will kill the tubers. All right, so there's two two things that you probably won't experience down there. Um, But if, if you do have those problems, the best thing to do is to let the leaves get burnt and then cut them off and then lift them. Uh, out your first in your first year i don't think you need to bother about doing that unless you need to change the way that the colors are working or the heights of, 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 of you know you want to change the aesthetic, change the aesthetic thing all right so we'll talk about that in a second but if you're going to leave them in the soil then i would just suggest you give them a light cover of a compost say to about 50 mil and then just sit back and wait until uh, next year's display of flowers that's easy yeah once the new shoots break through, um, the compost next season, an application of a quality product like Neutrog Strike Back for Orchids is a great thing. Mm. If you don't live at Mount Martha, and I've got you wrong, and you do live in an area where you're going to get heavy frosts or snow, then you would need to lift the tubers up once the foliage has died off and s- store them in either vermiculite, dry sand, or in glad wrap with little holes poked through it. Oh, that's a good one. The tubers should not be left touching one another, so you've got to keep the separation between them. 
and you prune off any dry or damaged root systems. Now, with, you mentioned that you'd like to think about talk, growing something in between. If you do happen to lift them, then I would suggest you grow a, a legume in between them. So you could grow things like um, broad beans, you could grow sweet peas, or even for a massive colour, lupins would look absolutely brilliant. That sounds beautiful. And each one of those that you're growing is going to be adding nitrogen and fixing it into the soil. Okay, good luck with that, Debbie. That sounds actually quite easy to leave them in the soil. I think that would be much easier if, if you're not in a freezing area. So I'm going to do that too. Mm-hmm. Except that I'm moving house, so I'll think about that. <laughs> <laughs> now, we have another question from Ali, who had a, a question earlier about, at the beginning of the podcast. can't remember what it was about, but I think it was about planting under gum trees. Mm-hmm. She says... I know Keith isn't a fan of Manchurian <laughs> pears. However, ours were established when we moved into our house. Can he provide a solution to stop the thorny suckers that appear at the base of the trees? I usually just cut them off. All right. We had here as a, one of our guests, we had Phil Shepherd at one stage. We did. And, and uh, Phil is, is a wealth of knowledge in terms of any of these deciduous plants. Um, and one of the valuable tips that... that uh, I learnt from Phil and he actually showed me was the way that you remove the suckers and the, the thing that you don't use is a pair of secateurs because what you're doing is you're cutting off the growth but leaving the bud. So he always rips them off uh, and he's, he's quite a strong bloke and he's got big strong hands so he just breaks them off and rips them off and that destroys the actual bud from the plant and it won't come back. But I would suggest that if you if you can't rip them off, then use a rough saw, so a real rough cut using a pruning saw, or even using an, a, a little tomahawk and smashing them off like that. You're going to damage a bit of the bark, but if it's a good healthy tree, you won't have a problem. That sounds better because they're thorny. They are Unless thorny. You can rip them off <laughs> with a hand. So that's it. That's it. Oh, that's, there you go. Just just treat them with, treat them with disrespect. Treat them mean, Ali. Sounds dreadful. Okay, now Charlotte has our last two questions for this month. I have worked in an old established garden which consists of seven acres of deciduous trees for nearly two years. This will be my second winter, so the second time to deal with all the autumn leaves. Previously, all the leaves have been taken to a big compost bay and that's where they stay. Last winter, I started putting the leaves straight onto and around all the garden beds to suppress weeds and feed the soil, throwing a light layer of wood chips over the top. Please tell me it's okay to do this. I'm not sure it's how a proper English garden is supposed to look, but it definitely makes life easier regarding weeds and soil quality. I'm trying to convince my co-workers that it is the way to go. I guess a lot of people still like the bare soil look around plants. Well, hi, Charlotte. You are indeed doing the best for the soil underneath the trees. It's better than in the compost bin because they take so long to break down. If you could pull, pull the mower over them and break them up a little bit, that's going to be even better because the smaller the particle size, the more of, of um, leaf area is exposed for the microbes to break it all down. So the other thing to consider is that, is that leaves break down differently by the species. So uh, leaves from an oak tree, which make the best compost, by the way, um, take more time to decompose because they are low in calcium. So by adding a, a handful of dolomite lime per square metre and then watering it over it to ensure that the, it's, it's a thoroughly wetted area will help the process of conversion. Another little tip would be to add uh, an organic fertiliser at the same rate as the dolomite lime, so a handful per, per square metre of, say, blood and bone or chicken pellets, 
will help that process to break down you know, more quickly. More quickly because it's, it's adding the nitrogen component which will feed the microbes to break it down. Don't cover the leaves with wood chips. Um, Why and would the you reason, do that well, as well? well? This is what they've been doing. They're putting a small layer oh, yeah, yeah, of, yeah, yeah, of yeah, wood right, chips sorry. over the top. You don't do that because what you're doing then is you're adding uh, more carbon component to that soil and that's robbing the soil of nitrogen in trying to break that down so the plants aren't getting the full benefit but you have a look at gardens in england or europe or you know deciduous gardens just about anywhere and those leaves naturally fall back down onto the ground where the where the plants are and help to feed that whole process so we've got this beautiful closed loops system of composting fantastic now, the last question from Charlotte is, I have a glass house stroke hothouse and I'm wondering if I could grow a grapevine in it. And if so, is there a particular one that won't take over completely and still have delicious grapes for us to enjoy? My hothouse is around five metres by three metres. Wow. Hi again, Charlotte. You certainly could grow a grapevine in your hothouse. You're just going to be mindful just how hot it can get inside in summer if you don't have ventilation. So keep that in mind. Most of the table grapevines grow to about four metres by four metres, but they can all be pruned and kept in size that suits the environment of the, of the hothouse, for instance. You must first choose what variety you want. Table grapes are either red or white, and the best red table grapes are Concord or Crimson Seedless. And for white grapes, Sultana, which can be eaten dried or fresh from the vine, and there's another variety called Fantasy Seedless and Gordo Blanco. And all of these are quality grapes. You'll need to do some research um, to find supplies of stock and late winter is when they will be available. Fabulous. There we go, Charlotte. Good luck with that. Okay, lots of fabulous questions again. Thank you, Keith. And thanks to everyone who sent them in to us. Please keep them coming because we love them. Now it's time for our Q&A prize winner and this month it goes to Debbie. Her newfound obsession with dailies after hearing our daily podcast is so good to hear. We'll be in contact with you shortly, Debbie. Many thanks again to the team at The Plant Runner for supplying the fabulous monthly Q&A prize. Visit theplantrunner.com. Thank you for listening to Muddy Boots. For more information on today's podcast, please go to muddyboots.net.au. And happy gardening.